We're continuing on in our series from Exodus on the tabernacle. This morning we're going to focus on the altar of burnt offering and what it has to say to us today. This is all, of course, within the context of our series on worship and how we gain more rhythm in worship. What are the rhythms that we seek to live out as they're taught to us in this um, teaching tool that God gives us in the Old Testament called the tabernacle, something that was so very important to his presence among his people. Exodus chapter 27, we're going to read the first eight verses together. Um, I want to encourage you to open your Bibles there. And as we gather around God's word, let's pray for his blessing and presence on our time. We're grateful, O oh God, for your word. We're grateful for the tabernacle and for the altar and what they teach us about your forgiveness what they teach us about what you gave to your people through the death of a lamb and what you have given to us through the death of your lamb, your son, Jesus Christ. We pray, Father, that you meet us in whatever sort of context we're in. If we're in a a place of joy because of things like graduations and end-of-year, school-year stuff and summertime coming and vacations anticipated, Um, Father, may we be um, met in that joy to go out and serve you with joy and freedom. If we are in a place of complacency, then challenge us this morning with your word. If we are in a place, Father, of discouragement or fear or doubt, touch us with your hand. May we know your encouragement and know your presence. We might go from this place reminded that where we go, your spirit goes with us if we know the name of Jesus and that we are never without you. And that no matter what our circumstances may be, um, we always know the grace, the presence, and the love of Jesus Christ. Father, equip us to this end. May this time truly be a blessing to us because of your work through Jesus, your spirit, and you yourself, Father, in our lives. We pray these things in Christ. Amen. Exodus chapter 27, first eight verses. Again, this is God's instructions to Moses. Build an altar of acacia wood, three cubits high. It is to be square, five cubits long and five cubits wide. Make a horn at each of the four corners so that the horns and the altar are of one piece. And overlay the altar with bronze. Make all its utensils of bronze. Its pots to remove the ashes and its shovels, sprinkling bowls, meat forks and fire pans. Make a grating for it, a bronze network, and make a bronze ring at each of the four corners of the network. Put it under the ledge of the altar so that it is halfway up the altar. Make poles of acacia wood for the altar and overlay them with bronze. The poles are to be inserted in the ring so that they will be on two sides of the altar when it is carried. Make the altar hollow out of boards. It is to be made just as you were shown on the mountain. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Obviously, in comparison to last week's discussion of the tabernacle, this is a little bit easier for us to picture. The altar is um, really not a large thing, but very easily fit up here on the stage. Figure it's about maybe 15 feet long, 15 feet square, so about this space. 
On its each corner, altars, it's raised up above the ground. Its boards are around it. It goes about this high. It's actually laid upon um, some dirt to raise it up off the ground. And then inside, there is a grating about halfway up on which the priests would lay the lamb and would sac- uh, the lamb that was sacrificed. But before we get into, you know, how the altar looked, I want, I want us to get into the mind of, of the people. And for us to get into the mind of the people as they would uh, perform these sacrifices or bring these sacrifices, I want to think a little bit um, about addiction. Some of you know addiction awfully well. Maybe you know it personally, your own life. But uh, certainly, if you don't know it in your own life, you know it in the lives of probably people around you, family members who've dealt with addictions of any kind. And we're really talking about any kinds of addictions. And frankly, um, in the world that we live in, the culture that we we live in, addiction um, has definitely become a uh, many-tendriled thing in a lot of ways. For a long time, if you thought about addiction, you thought about perhaps simply alcohol or drugs. But Now, what we're understanding is that addiction shows itself in a lot of ways. You can be addicted to gaming, uh, video games. You can be addicted to uh, pornography. You can be addicted to, obviously, cigarettes. You can be addicted to any number of things. Apparently, some of you are addicted to Facebook or Instagram or social media just in general. Um, it's, it's amazing even watching the world that we live in. I think there are people who are addicted to simply their cell phones. Go down to Citrus Plaza, down and have lunch outside in that little fountain area, and how many people sit there and just are on their phone the entire time because it's like an extension of their hand. And when you think about addiction, obviously you think about trying to break addiction and how a person might break addiction. For this, I want you to picture... Uh, a smoker. Now, some of you know this very well. The addiction to tobacco and nicotine is heavy, and it's significant. People have made billions of dollars off of the product, and people have made billions of dollars of getting people off the product. And if you've ever tried to quit smoking, then you know what that sort of looks like. You come to a point and you're sick and tired of smoking and it's control over you and you take whatever cigarettes you have and you crumple up the packages and you throw them in the garbage and everything that's associated, maybe you had ashtrays around your house, you throw them in the garbage and you say, I'm not going to drive down this street because that's the store where I bought cigarettes and I'm not going to do that anymore. I'm going to go a different way to work or I'm going to drive around town differently. And then, of course... The journey begins because the journey is a hard one. Nicotine has a heavy-duty hold upon you. And your body begins to react as you go through withdrawal. And you can imagine, or maybe you know it very well yourself, that when you're trying to break that addiction to something like tobacco, it becomes one of those things that's all-consuming. It's one of those things that actually controls your life for a time. Not the tobacco itself, but breaking the habit of it. It's something that every moment you're thinking to yourself, I'm not going to smoke, I'm not going to smoke, I'm not going to smoke. And in other habits it might be, I'm not going to drink, I'm not going to drink, I'm not going to drink. 
I'm not going to look at that on the internet. I'm not going to look at that on the internet. I'm going to put down my phone and I'm going to leave it there. It can be whatever it is with a particular addiction. And in those moments, when you're seeking to break addiction, it is something that consumes you. And because it consumes you, there's no freedom from it. Freedom can come. Freedom can happen. And in fact, I'm sure there are many testimonies in this place of people who were addicted to something at one time and went through the challenge of knowing that burden of addiction and broke that so much enough now that they're free, at least free from that compulsion to smoke. They may still want to. They may still want to occasionally have a cigarette. Once an addict, always an addict. And there's always things that can trigger that. But certainly, for a time, unless you have the sort of help and community that you need, breaking an addiction is not something that you experience a lot of freedom in until you go through it for a time. And the reason that I bring this up is that when we think about the altar of burnt offering, this is one of those things that is there for God's people to know freedom. They would come, and I want you to sort of picture this, if you will. A family would go through its flock, and it would look for a good lamb. And if they didn't have a flock on their own, then they would go to somebody and they would look through that flock and they would purchase a lamb without blemish, is what the text says. It's supposed to be a perfect lamb. And they would come with that lamb to the tabernacle. And what would they enter in through? The what? The gate, because it's the only way in. They would enter into the gate and immediately as they entered the gate, they would be greeted by one of the priests. And the priest, and it would be a family who would come, not just one individual, but it would be a family who would come. And that family would lead the sheep, lead the lamb into the gate of the tabernacle. And the priest would receive that offering. And what the priest would do is put his hand upon the the lamb and then put the hand, his hand upon each of the members of the family. And the intention there was to transfer the sin of each of the members of the family onto that lamb so that when that lamb was taken towards the altar, eventually slaughtered, killed, spread open and put upon the altar and consumed in a burnt offering that the sins that had imparted from the family upon the lamb were consumed in the fire of the tabernacle and consumed in the fire of the altar and they were gone. And you can imagine then that there was this intention that because you are free from the sin that you have put upon that lamb and it's been consumed in the fire, that you could leave knowing freedom. But remember the rhythm of the tabernacle in the Old Testament. That was the only way for you to have your sins forgiven was through the ritual of burnt offering. But what happened if you went through the gate and as you went through the gate and were five yards past it and stubbed your toe and you said a word you shouldn't say? 
Well, that sin hadn't been taken from you and put upon the lamb. And you can almost imagine that the people would leave and almost have to check themselves. How long could I live in freedom? Because the next day, we know how that works in our lives. Immediately upon uh, gaining forgiveness for sin or confessing sin, it doesn't take long for us to commit some other sin. How long did the people of Israel experience freedom after sacrifices? The sacrifices were powerful images for the people. Imagine how a child would be taught by their parents about what it meant. And then they would see it. There's this idea of imparting sin upon that lamb, and that lamb is consumed, and no longer does that sin that has been put upon the lamb have power over you. And then there's one even more powerful picture, if you want to imagine that. Because what would happen, remember, remember, the grate was up higher upon the altar. So after the lamb was consumed in the fire, the ash would fall to the ground. And you could only do that for so long before they would have to pick up the altar, shovel out the ash, and take and bring that to somewhere outside the camp. Imagine if you're a kid, and we know how kids work, they play wherever it is that they can play. They're at the edge of the camp one day, and they see the place. The place where the priests have taken that ash and brought it outside the camp and piled it in an area. If you're a kid and you see that ash and know what it is, what sort of image is that? That's all the people of Israel's sin. Consumed. And powerless upon them anymore. What a powerful, powerful image it would be for a young child. But we know that the rhythm had to be continued because you would go out and you would sin again. So you had to bring another lamb. And then another lamb. And then another lamb. And that ritual becomes almost a ritual of forgiveness. I need to make sure that I'm in a good relationship with God. I need to be sure that I am forgiven by God. I need to be sure that every time I go that all my sins are taken away and it only lasts for so long before sin has that hold upon me. And for us, sin has that powerful impact upon our lives. And the problem is, is that can hold us stuck in the same way it did for the Israelites unless we seek and gain forgiveness through the grace of Jesus Christ. But here's the thing. We're addicted. We're addicts. We're addicts to sin. We want to not sin. If I asked you who wants to not sin, all of you would put up your hands because you know its impact on your life. But you and I are addicts, and it consumes us, that addiction, at some point. Even the best of you are going to leave this place and do things in the week ahead that are disobedient to God. Either a sin of commission something you've done or a sin of omission something that you didn't do that you should have done and that seeking of forgiveness can be in some ways the same rhythm that we have with the Israelites we need to keep going going back to the altar keep consuming another lamb keep asking for forgiveness keep confessing 
It's this whole idea of needing to be perfect. And the only way we're perfect is if our sin is removed from us through confession. If we simply live as forgiven sinners, but we don't move forward in that forgiveness, we're prone to remain the same, and that's not God's desire. God's desire is not for you and I to be in that constant rhythm of seeking forgiveness. If that were the case, then the tabernacle would hold. God would have still had us bringing sacrifices. God would have still had us being consumers of lambs. He chose, however, to remove that burden from us because it can be all-consuming. Let me tell you a story about how I see this. There's a little church, small rural church. And it's a church that has been there for a long time. Lots and lots of senior saints. There's not many young people around anymore because many of them have moved away and sought jobs in larger cities. In fact, it's interesting because that describes about 15% of the churches in our denomination. Unfortunately, a lot of those churches are dying because young people have moved out. And this church has a whole group of people who are people who love God. They love Jesus. They want to serve him. And they got the nice white church. And of course, the pastor lives next door in the house that looks almost exactly like the church because that's the way they used to do things. And this church has been around for a long time. And this church, every time they come on Sunday, the, the pastor, he's a good guy. He's a faithful guy. But one thing that he wants to know his, for his people is that they need to know the forgiveness of Jesus. And every single message that he preaches is about the forgiveness of Jesus. And so every Sunday they go through a very, very somber time as a part of their worship where they would sit and pray silently and he would say, pastor would lead them and say, it is now our time for our prayer of confession. I want you to all sit quietly before God and make sure that you confess your sins so that you can receive the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. And of course, we hear that and we think, well, that's certainly a good activity to do because they need the forgiveness of Jesus Christ in their life. But that's what the pastor does and that's all he does. And so, what happens is, is over the course of several years, this is one of those pastors who sticks, he stuck around for like over a decade. Over the period of five, six, seven, eight years, every single person who came to that church on Sunday had already in some ways done a little catalog of their sins for that week so that they could sit during that quiet time and make sure that every single one of them was forgiven. Every single one of them were focused upon seeking forgiveness for their sin. That's good. But if that's all that God wants for us, then we just be better be people who have a pen and paper handy at all times to make sure that we can name our sins so that when the time comes for confession, we can make sure we get them all. And I don't know about you, but first of all, there's not enough paper on the planet. 
And second of all, I don't want my life to be focused on making sure that I know what my sins are so that I can seek forgiveness from them. Because that's not freedom. That's a different type of bondage. Bondage to sin is a powerful thing. But a bondage to even needing forgiveness is equally entangling and very much so. See, that little church in many ways represents a group of people who in my life have been very frustrating because they look around the world and instead of seeing people who are loved by God and possibly may know the grace of Jesus Christ, what do they see? People who need forgiveness for their sins. They don't see the potential of what it means when somebody lives into the forgiveness of sins. They don't see what it is that God can do with somebody who is a forgiven sinner in the grace of Jesus Christ who goes and lives in that forgiveness, not focused upon their sin, but instead focused upon what God might be calling them towards and who God might be calling them to love and encourage and minister to and support. And the problem is, is that there are tons of Christians who are forgiveness sin meters. And I struggle with that. Because again, if that's what God wanted for us, the tabernacle would still be in play. But in the tabernacle, we see again how God gives us more. This altar that was given 15 feet by 15 feet was given to his people, the Israelites, for the purpose of atonement for sin. Certainly, someone has to pay for the transgressions of the people. And the lamb paid the price. When the lamb paid the price, you were forgiven. You were forgiven. That's that that transference of sin. Your hand upon you, hand upon the lamb. You're forgiven once that lamb is consumed. Go and live in that forgiveness if they would be willing to live in that forgiveness, or if they would be caught up in the ritual of seeking forgiveness again, they weren't living into that new rhythm. God also gave to them more than just forgiveness of sins. Imagine how you you would feel if you were leaving the tabernacle after sacrifice. Maybe you're a little kid. And you're that little kid who saw the priest put his hand upon your father and then hand upon the lamb. Then he came and he put his hand upon you and the hand upon the lamb. And you knew the things that you'd done as a small child. You knew that you had said things to your little brother or sister that weren't very nice. You knew that you didn't always obey your parents. You knew that you had probably done some things that really made God upset. Because you're a child and that's the way you think. And this priest comes, puts his hand upon you, puts his hand upon the lamb. And if you've been listening well and you know what's going on and you see that lamb burn up, what do you think? Those things are gone. They're gone now. 
And as a little kid, you don't go out of a place thinking, well, I'm going to mess it up. I'm going to do something next. I almost picture in my mind a six or seven-year-old boy or girl coming out of that gate of the tabernacle. What? Skipping. Skipping. I've been forgiven. That sin is no longer mine. And now I can go and I can play. And I don't have to worry about what I said to my sister or my parents. Because that sin is no longer upon me. You know what that is? That's freedom. And when you and I have been forgiven of sins, when the people of Israel were forgiven of their sin, when they went out, if they were willing to live into it, they were living in the freedom of no longer having that burden. That burden of sin upon them. They could go free, lighthearted, full of joy and life and hope because they were no longer in bondage to that sin anymore. That's the difference. The difference between leaving the place, looking for the place where you're going to sin next so you can keep track of it for next time, and going from that place, living into the freedom of the forgiveness that you received through the sacrificed lamb that consumed the sins of your life. And these people in Israel who had this burden to go through the rhythm of the atonement lamb, of getting their sins burned. They didn't have Jesus. That little child didn't have Christ, and yet they knew freedom. Do you and I know freedom? Because I meet a lot of Christians who their whole thing is about making sure that they have their list of sins figured out so they can confess them instead of living into the freedom that they have been given in Jesus Christ once and for all. We don't need to come with lambs to church anymore and I don't need to get my white shirt bloody with the sacrifice of a lamb because Jesus did that once and for all and he continues to do it even in our sin, even in our brokenness. As we talked about last week, that's what grace is. You and I do not need to be perfect to receive the grace of Christ in the moment God gives it to us even though we don't deserve it. And if that doesn't give you and I freedom, I don't know what will. That's the incredible part about the sacrifice, the sacrificial lamb of Jesus Christ who took upon us. God put his hand upon Jesus. He put his hand upon us and imparted that sin to Jesus Christ. And Christ was consumed on the cross and that grace is offered always so we might have life in abundance. We might live in freedom. The gift of grace we know in Christ means our sins are forgiven. Yeah. But our rhythm is not one of constantly seeking forgiveness. It's a rhythm of freedom. You have been given freedom to go out and be the person that God calls you to be. Don't go looking for places where you're going to mess up. 
Go and look for places where God might potentially use you to grow his kingdom. Don't look for places where you might make a mistake. Go and look for places where you have to have faith, where you have to take risks. Sure, you might mess up, but what do you know? You know the grace of Christ, and that grace of Christ covers even when you make mistakes. If you are willing to do what it is that you do in obedience to him, that's real freedom. In Christ, no weapon formed against you can prosper outside of you or within you. Your own guilt, shame, or burden, need for forgiveness, or people who will take out things upon you and make life difficult. No weapon formed against you can prosper. In Christ, you are more than a conqueror. It's the truth of the text. And that conqueror, you you conquer through Christ the challenges of life. Why? Because he's covered you with his grace and given you freedom. You are in Christ a powerful ambassador of God who carries his spirit with you, his presence and his love into a world that desperately needs it. And that's freedom. And remember, how many times have I said it before? If we as Christians are sourpusses, if we don't have this joy and this freedom and this life in our lives, why would anyone want to follow Jesus when they look at us? Why would they? There's nothing attractive about a sourpuss Christian who just looks around at the world and sees a need for forgiveness of sins. They're looking for freedom. The world's looking for life and joy and hope. And you've got it. I've got it through the grace of Christ. And as we live into that freedom, our gratitude for it gives glory to God. And that's worship. You want to think about how to worship God as we think about it every moment of every day? Let me tell you, live in the freedom of the grace of Jesus Christ. Go out from this place, living in the freedom, know that, knowing that as you seek to be obedient to God's calling in your life, where you go where he calls you to go and you do what it is that he calls you to do, if you are willing to do that, submitting to him, even if you make mistakes, his grace covers you and you can just keep on going, seeking to follow Jesus. Freedom. Years ago, I was on a missions trip to downtown L.A. with a group of students. And while we were there, we met some folks, John and Jude Tiersma Watson. They're missionaries with an organization called Interchange L.A. Some of you may know who they are. They do uh, a lot of community development. It's a lot of relationship building. And so they meet a lot of different people in a lot of different walks of life. And they've met a lot of gang members. They've met a lot of people who have been involved in lives of absolute abject poverty and sin and brokenness and lots of messy things. One person that they met, his name was Mario. And Mario had been, there's actually, if you didn't know, there's a number of different t- uh, uh, um, uh, branches in gang culture. 
There is certainly the drug and violence gang culture. There actually is a driving gang culture. So when you hear about street racing, that's actually oftentimes connected with gangs who are street racers sort of on behalf of their gang. And they're actually um, trying to uh, um, make a name for themselves and make money on behalf of the gang in street racing. They have dance branches to the gang, believe it or not. I didn't, I didn't know this, but I found this out a little while ago. And one thing that they have is graffiti artists, taggers, who are part of a gang. That's get your name out, mark community, mark territory, and all that other sort of stuff. And that's actually a branch. Mario was a part of the graffiti gang group. And there is money, there's girls, there's drugs, there's all that stuff that is a part of it. And Mario had been a part of that for a long time. And he was all tatted up and he was, he looked tough. One of those guys that I was with there with a group of junior high kids. And you're thinking, okay, are my kids safe around this guy? But this guy had been changed by the grace of Jesus Christ. And he talked with us for an afternoon once. And he sat with us and talked with us about gang life. And you got to remember, these are farm kids from Visalia that I was with. And their whole experience of gangs was only stuff from movies. And they didn't actually have an idea of what was going on. Their minds were blown by Mario's story. It's a powerful, powerful story of God changing somebody from being a gang member who only focus in life was to find the craziest, most visible places to climb up, climb in, climb on, and put his tag name up there to represent his gang. That was everything that consumed him. And he was a very talented graffiti artist. When you looked at his stuff, it was not only, you know, frustrating because it was in places where it shouldn't be, but it was actually quite beautiful. And Mario came to us and he said, you know, after Jesus got a hold of me, for four years, I wanted nothing to do with a spray can or one of those big markers. Because I really felt like those things were things that I had to have taken away from me by God because those were all about my sin." And I hated them. I would go into a hardware store and I would, to get something, and I would on purpose not go near the paint section because just seeing those things brought up that pain and that frustration from that life that I had been a part of and that now that I knew Jesus, I didn't want a part of that anymore. He said, and then there was a little girl that I was with and she was a, I think it was a niece of his. And they were at some family gathering. And she had a piece of paper and she was coloring. And she was doing something and she said, here, Mario, you do it. And he picked up this marker and it had been really the first marker that he'd picked up since his gang days. And he picked it up and she said, can you draw a flower? And Mario drew little flower and the whole time he's thinking to himself what am I doing I don't want anything to do with this and the little girl looked at the flower and she said to him Mario that's a really good flower that's really beautiful draw another one so he gets a different color and he draws another one he says, that's really a great 
flower. Now can you draw a puppy? Now this is an artist. This is a guy, he actually, the graffiti artists are oftentimes very, very talented folks. And he was. He drew a little puppy dog. She said, that's a great puppy dog. Can you draw more pictures? And Mario went home. By this time, he had been married with a couple kids, and he talked to his wife, and he said, I don't know what's going on, but I feel like God is giving me something back. And by the time we met Mario, it had been a couple years removed from that. Mario brought out his portfolio. And he showed us pictures of central Los Angeles with people and family members and images of family gathering to worship. He had people raising their hands in worship with a cross in the background. He had a man who was standing in front preaching with a Bible open in his hands. And it was incredible. One of those things, like literally now, I wish I had been smart enough to give Mario a hundred bucks because I want one of those pictures in my office. Of course, that would be maybe a disservice to an artist. I'll give him 200 bucks. And he said, you know, when I realized that this was an opportunity that God had given me, I was holding up a picture, to worship him. It was like my life had been given back to me. He was talking about freedom. Christ gives us all life, grace, and forgiveness. And that gives us freedom. It gives us freedom to be the best teacher doing crazy things that honor God that we can in the classroom, although take your summer break and enjoy it. It means that we're in the workplace, the store that we work in, the office that we work in, doing the things that we do in the grace and the freedom of Jesus Christ, knowing that God can be glorified in it because that's the gift that grace gives us. We are no longer burdened by sin, so much so that for us to be less consumed by the sin and the rhythm of forgiveness and more consumed by grace, in the rhythm of freedom is so much an important part of what it means to grow as a follower of Jesus Christ. Would you pray with me? We praise you, O oh God, for the freedom that we know in Christ. We praise you that we are no longer consumed by having a need to name every sin, write them down so that they are covered and go upon your lamb, Jesus Christ. Instead, we can acknowledge our sin. We can know, Lord, that we need the grace of Christ, that we can ask for it, but that we can seek more than that. The freedom and the freedom, the hope, and the joy that comes from living within that forgiveness. That we are not people who look around at the world around us and see the sin of others, but instead see places where your grace is at work, where your love transforms, where your joy can come and someone's life can be changed. Father, may we understand this for ourselves and may we understand that you do that work in others too. We pray all of these things in that powerful, freeing name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Please stand.
In some ways, I think that last line is not a song we sing to God, but a line that God sings to us. You are forever mine. 
In the grace of Christ, I will never, ever let you go. You know what the implications of that are? That we can skip more. We can skip. Skip in the freedom, the grace of Christ. Go out. Show the world the joy and the life that he has given us in Jesus. People of the river, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance toward you and give you his peace. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, God's people said together. Go in peace.
I don't know. I don't know. Yes. Messy spirituality. Messy spirituality. It's a great book. Would well recommend. I won't tell. I won't say a word. Messy spirituality. Y a c c o n n e l l i. I think. Yeah. No, there's not. Exactly. What's that? Am I? I better shut up now.
Good morning, everyone. We welcome you to our worship service. My name is Beth Kim, and I'm the worship director here, and we truly are glad that you've come to worship with us today on this beautiful day. We um, anticipate uh, a blessed service. We're going to celebrate communion together, and again, are just very thankful that you're with us this morning. Would you please stand, greet each other, and especially if you don't know somebody, make, make yourself known to them.
Good morning. My name is Pastor Scott Elgersma. I'm one of the pastors here at the river. I have the privilege of this morning and gathering with you around the table of communion. And this is something that is uh, an important part of our worshiping life, of our community, uh, something that we take, um, we take great joy and life in because there's a lot going on here. When we come to the table, we do so because Christ commanded it. He said, um, do this in remembrance of me. In fact, if you look, it's carved right on the front of the table. Do this in remembrance of me. So when we bring this table up, we're fulfilling that commandment. But there's other things happening. You know, we're actually taking part in something that foreshadows what will happen in the future when we who know the grace of Jesus Christ will be with him forever. When we gather together around his table, when we gather together in the presence of the living God, that's part of what we are looking forward to. We are also, when we come to the table, reminded that God fuels us through his spiritual presence. We, we don't believe that these the bread and the juice actually become the flesh of Christ. We don't believe that uh, what some churches might believe, that we are consuming the body and blood of Jesus Christ physically. But we believe that Christ is spiritually present, that he is present in this place, that he is present with us as we partake in the elements and we experience that presence that then encourages us, challenges us, and fuels us to go out into the world that we have to glorify God, serve him, and do what it is that he calls us to do. A reminder to you that we are a church who believes strongly in covenant. And this is a covenant activity for us here at the river. If you are a family that has participated in the covenant by having your children as children baptized um, here at the river or elsewhere, then we want to encourage you to take elements for your children because they're part of this. Their participation is, uh, we don't want to hinder that. We don't want to stop them from experiencing God's presence. So take those elements for your children and when the time comes and we take them together, bless your children with them. And if you don't take those these elements for your kids, that's totally okay. We encourage you still so that they're participating and they're a part of this to bless them during our time of remembrance. I'm going to ask the elders forward. On the night on which Jesus Christ was betrayed, Passover night, as we talked about a couple of weeks ago, when he and the disciples were observing the Seder, the Passover meal, he and his disciples were gathered in the upper room and they were eating a meal and Jesus took the bread and he gave thanks for it and he broke it so that they might see that. And he said to them, this is my body given for you. And later on in the meal, he took juice Perhaps it was wine. We don't know. And he took it and he poured it out so that they might see it. 
and he said, this is my blood given for you. As we take these elements and as you receive them from our elders, I would ask that you not just be mindful of this as a ritual, even a good rhythm, that you're not just taking something out of uh, a simple observance because it is what it is that we do. When Jesus spoke to his disciples, he says, he said to them, I give this. This is a gift. It's a gift. Receive it as a gift.
so fitting that we would sing that song as part of our celebration of the sacrament. 
there's that element of desperation. That's that element of being lost. That when we come to this table and are reminded of what it is, the body and the blood of Christ shed for our sin, that without that, we're lost and we're desperate. But with it, you have life. Brothers and sisters, take, eat, remember, and believe. The body of Christ was broken for the complete forgiveness of all of your sins. the same way. Take, drink, remember, and believe. The blood of Jesus was shed for the complete forgiveness of all of your sins. Would you pray with me a prayer of joy? Living God, we are grateful for the work of Christ that gives us life and hope, gives us your presence. And as we remember this, we are mindful that our story in you involves us one day eating this meal with you for eternity. We pray, oh God, that we can be encouraged, challenged, that we can be loved by you in this activity, that you may be glorified in us. We are grateful, Father, for your reminder. We are grateful for this sign and this seal of your love for us, your people. We pray these things all in the name of Jesus. Amen. As we move forward in our worship time, we're glad that children have been with us, but we would like to dismiss frogs and uh, rainbows for their worship time. Everyone else stays in. I guess the unicorns and the purple people eaters stay here. Frogs and rainbows, you guys uh, are welcome to head out. And we're, um, we're privileged to have one of our deacons come up this morning who's going to pray for us as we share of our tithes and our offerings. Father God, we just thank you so much for blessing us so bountifully. We have so much. May we, as an act of worship and as an act of obedience, give generously back. Thank you, God, that we can support what you are doing here, and may you be glorified through it. In your name, amen. This evening's offering is going to be for the Benevolence Fund, and for those of you who may not know what that is, that is a fund that helps the needy in our church as well as in our community. If you'd like to give to that this morning, feel free to put it in the envelope, or you can put it in the box in the back. Um, The envelope can go right in the um, offering bag as well, and we'll continue to worship.
Thank you, praise team, for all your work bringing us into God's presence. If you'll notice, they're smiling more. Did you notice that this morning? Smiling, smiling, happy people. What we're realizing is that now with this video sound system that we have, um, you can actually see our facial expressions. And if we're um, without joy or life up here, you notice it more when you watch the recording. And so we're trying to show just how joyful, how shiny, happy people we are um, on our recording. So um, if you ever see it, just, uh, and it's funny too, because these guys have control uh, pretty significantly, and those cameras can get awfully close. Like, I seriously need to trim my nose hairs, because if I got a long one, you're going to know about it. It's a little, little intense. And I'm also discovering, by the way, this is probably going to be the last white shirt you see me wear for a while up here because James told me when I wear a white shirt up here, I actually look like an angel, which is unusual for me. So, um, uh, no, it's just too bright. And so I'm going to have to wear dark shirts more, which is fine. That's okay. But uh, just part of the learning curve with all this new stuff. Exciting. A couple little things for you, first of all. This evening, uh, 5 o'clock, down in the River House, we are going to continue our dialogue on the series, Can I Ask That? Asking some hard questions of Scripture and of God and dialoguing around Scripture and how we understand um, what God teaches us there. This afternoon's or this evening's dialogue is around, uh, is God a God of violence? If you read in the Old Testament, you're going to see a lot of death and destruction. And much of that is at God's command. Is God a God of violence if that's how it is that he fulfills his plan? Um, Certainly he's a God of shalom, and we know that from the New Testament and from the work of Christ. But how do we reconcile those things? So we're having a dialogue around that, and we're going to do that for the next couple weeks. We're going to continue that series um, of questions for the next couple weeks. And then beginning about the second last week of June... We're going to go through another dialogue series that is around some of the basics, some of the ideas of faith that um, are important to learn about, but not just learn about. The whole purpose is not just learning, but it is fundamentally to gain insight that will equip us as we go out from what we do here and live in the life that he has for us. So we're going to talk about things like communion and baptism, which is good to talk about those and learn about those, but what are these things, what are the implications for the rest of your life? What is that, the fact that we celebrated communion this week, how does that impact how you engage with the world around you? What is baptism next week with Paisley DeWitt? What does that mean and what implications does that that have for the rest of your life? So we're going to be having that conversation at 5 o'clock starting, I think it's the second last week of June, and we'll do that over the course of the summer. But I need your help. Here's where I need your help. Our children's ministry are stretched thin on Sunday nights. We need about six people per Sunday night to cover child care because we've got a lot of kids here, as you see every time we show up. And um, those folks have been great in that they've shown up every week during this dialogue series to cover what needs to be covered on Sunday nights. But they need your help because it shouldn't be just our children's ministry staff. It can also be people um, who are you. Uh, helping out and being a part of things. And even if what we do on Sunday night, if it doesn't um, 
turn your crank and you're not excited about it, that's fine, I understand that. But then maybe you can come so that it will equip somebody else to be able to go. If you're not excited about what's going on there, maybe you can say, hey, I'll cover a couple weeks, I'll cover a month, what have you. If that's the case for you and you can help out, please contact our children's ministry people. That would be um, very much appreciated by myself and, of course, by them. We continue our series on the tabernacle and specifically how it gains, uh, how it shows us and reflects for us a rhythm of worship. Um, we're doing this specifically the, around our value here at the river of receiving love, love received from God in worship as we worship him. And um, so we've been learning a lot through this tabernacle stuff. We're going to learn some more about the altar of burnt offering and what it was and what it meant and its implications for us. It's Exodus 27, first eight verses. As we gather around God's word, let's pray for his blessing upon our time. Thank you, God, for your word. We praise you that it is light to our feet, a lamp to our path. We praise you that we can come before you seeking, Lord, to learn, learn more about who you are, learn more about what you've called us to, learn more about what, um, what this life that you have given us is all about. We pray that you meet us however we might come. We might come in joy with lots of great things to celebrate. We might come with the challenges of life, the burdens for uh, broken and hurting relationships, the challenge of, of things that are not the way they're supposed to be. Maybe we're coming, Father, with complacency. Maybe we're just sort of status quo, um, just going along. Father, meet us whatever it is, wherever it is that we are. Touch us, move us, challenge us, equip us to go from this place glorifying you, honoring you, um, and seeking more and more through the work of Christ in our life and the power of the Holy Spirit to be, to be your children, to go where you call us to go and do what it is that you call us to do. We pray these things all in the name of Christ. Amen. Exodus chapter 27, beginning at verse 1. Build an altar of acacia wood, three cubits high. It will be square, five cubits long and five cubits wide. Make a horn at each of the four corners so that the horns and the altar are of one piece and overlay the altar with bronze. Make all its utensils of bronze, its pots to remove the ashes and its shovels and sprinkling bowls, meat forks and fire pans. Make a grating for it, a bronze network, And make a bronze ring at each of the four corners of the network. Put it under the ledge of the altar so that it is halfway up the altar. Make poles of acacia wood for the altar and overlay them with bronze. The poles are to be inserted into the rings so that they will be on two sides of the altar when it is carried. Make the altar hollow out of boards. It is to be made just as you were shown on the mountain. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. How many of you have been smokers at some time in your life or are willing to admit that? I hope you're not anymore. But if you have been and you aren't anymore, it's because you know about breaking the addiction, 
right? And even if you still are smoking, you also know the challenge of breaking that addiction. And all of us know something about trying to break addiction, either in our own lives or the lives of people in our families. And if you've never gone through what it means to break addiction, it's a hard journey because addictions can be a lot of different things, right? I mean, we used to think, okay, alcohol, something you can be addicted to, alcoholism. You can be a drug addict. We, you know, yeah, we can, we can understand that. But as culture has shifted and moved, there's actually many more things that we understand we can be addicted to. You can be addicted to pornography, a very powerful addiction in many people's lives. You can be addicted to gaming, video gaming. There are people who spend 23 hours at a time playing video games, and they literally can't stop, and it shapes and forms their brain. I know that some of you are concerned that your 7- and 8-year-old, 9-year-old, 10-year-old boys are like that because they just sit and play that game all day. Uh, addiction is a powerful thing. There are some folks who, frankly, are addicted to, to, to their phones. Go down to Citrus Plaza at lunchtime. Oh, yeah, someone just got called out. Some, little, some young lady just got called out for addiction to her phone. Because you go down to Citrus Plaza and have lunch out there sometime by the fountains and watch how many people literally the entire time have that thing attached to them. Like it's, it's an appendage. They can't remove it. And breaking that addiction, stopping some of those things. See, great example. <laughs> Who was that? Oh, awesome. I love it. That's great. Hey, don't be embarrassed. That was perfect. That was perfect. Outstanding. That was absolutely outstanding. Couldn't beat it on timing. I love that stuff. Gives me joy. So, so we, have, we have these addictions, and to break them is really, really hard. Take, for example, smoking. If you want to break the addiction to nicotine, it's a long and hard process. And I want to maybe sort of picture that with you. Somebody finally just gets sick of not feeling right, not feeling well. They can't walk more than half a mile and they're absolutely winded because of the stuff. Or maybe the doctor is saying, hey, you're getting emphysema and there's a problem. Or so they find out that somebody is, that they love has cancer from lung cancer, from, from smoking. So they say, I'm going to stop. And it looks something like this. You take those cigarettes that you have and every package of cigarettes that you have and you crush them up and throw them in the garbage or throw them somewhere where you can't even go after them again. And you take all the ashtrays that you have in your home, if you have them, and you crush them and you break them and you throw them away because you want nothing to do with that stuff. And you choose now to go to work a different direction because you don't want to pass the store that you would stop at and buy cigarettes. And you choose not to hang around in certain contexts with certain people because you know that they're going to ask you at least at some point, hey, you want to go for smoke? But the problem is, is that when that happens and you go through that process, it is a difficult one. Ask anyone who's tried to quit smoking. It becomes just quitting, all-consuming. It becomes the focus of everything in your life. I'm not going to smoke. I'm not going to smoke. I'm not going to smoke. I'm not going to do it. I'm going to really quit this time. And unfortunately, that's when the withdrawal and the cravings kick in. And then it gets even harder. In fact, 
If you were to ask somebody who's about four or five days into quitting smoking, if they're really glad that they quit, you know what they're probably going to say to you? No, I hate this. I want a cigarette so bad I would kill somebody for one. Because there's not freedom in that moment. That moment of addiction. That moment of feeling the struggle. Of feeling the, the, this thing inside that says, you're weak, you're broken, you're sinful, you're an addict. And you can't get free. Believe it or not, that has a whole lot to do with the altar. The altar for burnt offering, we'll call it 15 feet, 15 feet wide, 15 feet long, 9, 10 feet high. It was built actually to be set onto a berm, a little piece of dirt that would be underneath it to support it. Halfway up those three cubits, so a cubit and a half, figure about four and a half feet up the altar, there was a bronze grating inside. So you got boards on all sides, horns, a horn of an animal on the edge of each corner pointing out, and in the middle, about maybe this high or so, there is a bronze grating. And what would happen is you and your family would go to the tabernacle in order to do your atonement sacrifice. And you and your family would go to your flock and you would look for a sheep, but not just any kind of sheep, a lamb without blemish. Had to be perfect. Or if you didn't have a flock, you would find somebody that you could purchase one and you would go through and search for a lamb without blemish. So a cripple or something with a a mangled ear, you could not bring to the temple for the atonement sacrifice. And you'd bring it with your family. And how would you come in to the tabernacle? The gate. The only way to come in. Remember we talked about that last week, right? You remember. Changed your life. Don't you remember? Perfect. You come in through the gate, the family. You come in to the courtyard. And in front of the courtyard is the altar. And you would bring your lamb and the priest would be there. You would be greeted by the priest. And the priest would receive your lamb, put his hand upon the lamb, and then his hand upon you and every member of your family. And the reason that the priest would do that is that lamb was imparting your sin, or the, the priest was imparting your sin upon the lamb. And then they would take that lamb and they would slaughter it. They would kill it and take some of its blood and the priest would go inside the holy place and sprinkle some of that blood in front of the curtain of the holy of holies. And the whole idea of this then after the the lamb was slaughtered, it would be burned upon the altar on the bronze grating that was halfway up. And as it was consumed, the ash would fall underneath that grating. And the idea was, as your lamb, with your sins upon it, was consumed, so your sins are forgiven by God, put before the holy place of God, and he has forgiven them. 
And you can imagine that this would be a powerful ritual for families. Imagine a child, six-year-old boy. And that six-year-old boy hears about it from his parents, what this whole thing is about. And then he sees it happen with the priest imparting his sins upon the lamb and then seeing the lamb slaughtered, the blood taken away into the holy place and the lamb then burned up by the fire. So it's a powerful image for the people. Imagine how a child would be taught by their parents about what it meant and then they would see it. There's another powerful image that I think about because I, you know I think about these things. At some point, that ash pile would get too high I mean, figure, there are probably, with a nation the size of Israel, at least 50, maybe as many as 100 sheep being slaughtered and burned a day. After a while, that ash pile would get pretty tall. So they got to move the altar out, scoop out all that ash, and take it somewhere. Where would they take it? You would imagine that they would put it somewhere outside of the camp, take the sins away from the people. Now you're a kid, you're a six-year-old boy, and you do what six-year-old boys do and you play. And when you play, you explore, right? Well, imagine you're on the edge of the camp and suddenly one day as you're exploring, you come across this big ash pile and you figure out what it is because you've been to the tabernacle. Imagine what image that is. The sins of a whole lot of people in a big pile consumed outside the camp. These are powerful images when we think about them and put ourselves into the context in which they occurred for the people of Israel. But here's the challenge. See, that that was the rhythm. We talk about rhythm. That was the rhythm. The rhythm was seeking forgiveness. I have to bring a sheep, and the sheep is slaughtered, consumed by the fire, My sins are forgiven. I'm going home with my family. I walk home. I stub my toe in a rock. I say a bad word. Well, my sheep is already consumed. I've got another sin against me. That's going to have to wait for next time. That was the rhythm. Getting forgiveness over and over again. Remember, that was what God called them to do. Regularly bring that sheep to atone for your sins because their sins could be added up against them by God. Remember, God wants people who are holy. And if you've sinned, you're not holy. You can't come into God's presence through the great gate anymore until your sins are forgiven through another sheep. That's the rhythm, seeking forgiveness. And that's the problem. The problem is, if that becomes how you live, keeping track of your sins so that it can be forgiven the next time you bring a sheep in, you're not really living, and that's not what God intended for you. Certainly sin, it does have a powerful impact about our, on our lives, and it can hold us stuck actually, seeking that forgiveness unless we seek and gain forgiveness through Jesus Christ. But the problem is, is that isn't always the end of the solution. In fact, it's not. Because people, including me, 
get stuck in thinking about what sins I've committed that make me unholy before God. I don't end up living like God designed me to be. Why? Because I'm consumed by the guilt of what I've done before. The things that, oh, I need to go for, to Christ for forgiveness again. I need to go before God and seek forgiveness. Our problem can come in what happens next if we simply live as forgiven sinners but don't move forward in that forgiveness. We're prone to remain the same and that's not God's desire. Here's the thing. You and I are all addicts. We're all addicts, except we're addicted to sin. And as you talk to anyone who's tried to break an addiction, it becomes hard, and breaking that addiction becomes all-consuming so much that you focus, I'm not going to smoke, I'm not going to drink, I'm not going to do that thing, I'm not going to go on the computer, I'm not going to think about that stuff, I'm not going to do that, I'm not going to pick up my phone. Instead of doing what it is that you and I were designed to do, and that is really live. Here's another picture for you. It's a small rural church. It's in a small rural community. It's one of those beautiful white, old, whitewashed churches. And of course, the pastor pastor's house right beside it looks the exact same, and it's whitewashed too, because too, that's what they did in the old days. And this church, the pastor is a good guy. He's been there for about 12 years. And starting about year three, he was just convicted by his own sin, so he instituted in the church a time of confession during the worship service. And we do them occasionally here at the river. We don't do it always, but at this church, it was every week, it was regimented. Here's what it looked like. That they would pray, play a very somber hymn on the piano, very somber about your sin and your need for forgiveness. There's hymns like that. We can play one one time if you'd like. Um, But they're very convicting. They remind you just how bad you are in your sin. And this pastor would have a, a song like that played, and then he would ask you to bow your head quietly and think about your sin and confess them before God. And so everyone would bow their head and they would think about their past week and they would confess each of their sins and they could name them because oftentimes we know exactly what sins we have committed. And then at the end of that, the pastor would look into the eyes of the congregation and he would say, your sins are forgiven. Which is really a great thing when you think about it. I mean, it's a good thing for you to be told that because of Christ, your sins are forgiven. But the problem is, is that if that's your rhythm every week, to come in and think about that somberness of your sin and your brokenness that it causes in your life, and that your sins need to be forgiven, after a while, you come with a checklist of sins. Oh, well, if I'm going to do that this Sunday, i got to make sure I name all my sins. And that could be your attitude. In fact, that's what happened with this church. It became something where people had their checklist of sins and they could name them all and then the pastor would look at them in the eye and the sins are forgiven. Yep, thank you, pastor. And now I'll go home this afternoon and start my list again for next week. That's the rhythm. And the problem is with that rhythm, 
is that rhythm really has no life in it. It doesn't have freedom in it. It doesn't have joy in it. And the problem is that there's a lot of Christians, unfortunately, maybe you are one of them, who are in that place where you are desperate constantly for the forgiveness of Christ, but you're not living into what comes because of that forgiveness. And that consumes you, and your rhythm holds you back from being exactly the person that God calls you to be. Because God calls you to more. The tabernacle teaches us that. The altar was given to the people for the purpose of atonement for sin. Certainly that is the case. Someone has to pay for sins, for transgressions. And the lamb paid the price. Hand on the priest, hand on the person. And when that happened, you were forgiven. But God also gives more than just forgiveness. Imagine how you would feel on those days when you bring your sheep for atonement sacrifice. How you would feel leaving the tabernacle. Your burden had been lifted. You're free. Now, I don't want to think of this in terms of adults because I know how adults work. Adults can get into that mindset of guilt very quickly. I want to think think of it in terms of that six-year-old boy. Okay, come with me into the life and the mind of this six-year-old boy, which I know scares the dickens out of some of you. So this six-year-old boy has just seen this sheep. He calls the sheep Bob. Bob comes up with the priest. The priest puts the hand on Bob, and the priest puts the hand on the little boy. And the little boy knows the sins that are going on Bob the sheep. He knows them. Because he didn't talk to his sister and brother very good this week. And he didn't obey his parents every time. And he actually wanted to steal, and he did steal something from one of his friends. And the little boy sees the priest put his hand on Bob the sheep and understands that as the priest puts his hand on Bob the sheep, then his sins are going on Bob. And then the priest takes the lamb and little boy doesn't care too much about sheep because he's around sheep all the time. Watches the lamb being slaughtered. Watches the blood being taken into the holy place. Watches the lamb being put upon the bronze grate and consumed. And that boy knows that that lamb carries his sin and it's not held against him anymore. Now I want you to imagine that little boy going home. How would he feel? How would he feel about what he had just seen? All that stuff that made him feel bad, he knew it was gone. He was forgiven. God had forgiven him. He wasn't worried about what happens next. He was so grateful for what went on here. I think he skipped. He skipped home. Why did he skip home? Because there was that lightness and that joy from knowing no longer does he live under the burden of that sin. 
It's not on him anymore. It was on Bob the sheep, and Bob's gone. Bob's a pile of dust outside the camp. The boy doesn't have to worry about that anymore. He's living into the life and the joy and the freedom that comes from forgiven sin. And the challenge so often is for us as adults to go out and live like the boy into the freedom and the life and the joy that we have been given through the sacrifice of the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world for once and for all and gives us freedom and hope and life and a purpose for living. That's worship. And we forget about it so often. And this... This, this little boy, he knew if you asked him, oh yeah, we'll have to come back later with another sheep and that sheep will carry my sin again because he didn't know Jesus. In the Old Testament, he didn't have that hope yet. But we do. And that means that through the Lamb of God, our sins have been forgiven through his grace once and for all. Does that mean we live in freedom? Do we live in freedom? Do you live in freedom? Really? Because I know that there are moments when I don't. When I am consumed by that need for forgiveness. And that becomes my identity. It's so often, that's why I say to you, which are you, a saint or a sinner? And some of you always get it wrong. But that's okay, because the grace of God covers it, and you're still a saint. Because when we live as saints of God, we're living into that freedom and that hope and that joy that comes from knowing we don't have to be worried about gaining a rhythm of forgiveness. We don't have to think about the next time that we go to the tabernacle and sacrifice a sheep because God doesn't call us to do that anymore. We don't have to come on a Sunday morning with a sheep in tow so that we pastors can take care of that and your sins will be forgiven. How do you come here? You come here. As soon as you wake up in any moment of every day, you live within the grace and the forgiven power of Jesus Christ. You don't have to worry about sacrifices anymore. Now you live into the freedom and the joy of that grace. Tell your life that. Show it in your life. The gift of grace we know in Christ means our sins are forgiven. But our rhythm is not one of seeking forgiveness. It's one of seeking freedom. Going and living the life that God has called you to live in obedience. Knowing that you're going to make mistakes. Guess what? You are. You're going to mess it up. You're going to break things. You're going to goof things up. It's going to happen. And you know what? That's what grace is for. It covers it. Trust in that and keep going, pursuing God wherever it is that he calls you to go. 
Because if you go where he calls you to go, living into that freedom, crazy things are going to happen. And yes, some of them will be sin. No question. There will be brokenness somewhere in your life. But you know what else will happen? The kingdom of God will grow. Crazy things will happen like people will come to Jesus. People will be baptized into his name. There will be people who live within the grace of Christ and gain new life that they never knew before. He, people who are sick will be healed. There will be people who can't walk who will. There will be people who are addicted who are no longer addicted and they will be free. Why? Because you and I are living into that freedom and we're going to see what he does with that freedom. That's what it means when we know that the Lamb of God took away our sin now. We live in that grace and that freedom, trusting that as he calls us to go somewhere, and we go trusting he goes with us, that no matter what happens, even if there's mess-ups, even if things get broken, even if there's sin, that the grace of Jesus Christ covers us. Why? Because it covers us once and for all. Listen to me. In Christ, no weapon formed against you can prosper. You believe that? It's true. It's in the Word. In Christ, you are more than a conqueror. Do you believe that? What do conquerors do? Do conquerors whisper, yes? Are you more than a conqueror? Yes. You are. Not because of you, because of Jesus. Because of Jesus, you are more than a conqueror. And it's not that you stand there and say, yeah, I'm more than a conqueror. It's that you say, in Christ, yes, I am more than a conqueror. And I do not need to be worried about anything that has been formed against me in this world. Whether it be addiction, whether it be an enemy who seeks to destroy me, whether it be broken relationships, whether it be addictions that consume me, it doesn't matter what weapons forms against you. Because if you are, more than a conqueror, not on your own, in Christ, you can still live in the freedom that he has given you in your forgiven sin. Live in that freedom. You are an ambassador, powerful ambassador of God who carries his spirit and his presence and his love into a world that desperately needs it, and that's freedom. Here's the thing, folks. We know this world needs Jesus, yeah? We know it needs Jesus. Jesus is the hope of the world. The church is the hope of the world. But let me ask you this question. If you were to look at somebody and they were a sourpuss, would you want anything to do with what it is that they're trying to sell? They're just a crabby person. They're blah. They're boring. They just sort of, you know, you just don't even like being around them. Do you want to be a part of what they're selling? Of course not. But if you see someone who's living life and joy and hope, lives in community that is life-giving and encouraging, do you want to be a part of that? That's freedom. And so often I want to say to people within the church, none of you folks at the river, because you're joyful people, generally, mostly. A couple of you could use a, I don't know, 
monster drink or something like that to help you out. But most of you, joyful people. But I see it in the world around us. There are people who are just, they're naming people's sin. When they look around, they say, oh, that, that person needs forgiveness. That person needs forgiveness. That person really needs forgiveness. That person's really messed up and they need forgiveness. Instead of saying, you know what? That person, if they know the grace of Jesus Christ, they can live in the freedom and the hope that he has given them. That person, if they know the grace of Jesus Christ, they can live in some hope and the freedom and joy that he has given them. Look at the world through those sets of eyes and it's important for us to be people who live in hope and joy so that when people see the church, they see that hope and joy. And as we do live into that freedom, our gratitude gives glory to God. Something happens. God is glorified when we are willing to live in that freedom. A number of years ago, I was on a mission trip to downtown L.A. with a ministry called Interchange. Interchange is basically a community development, neighborhood organization seeking to really engage in relationship in a neighborhood. And uh, John and Jude Tiresma Watson at the time were missionaries there. I don't know if they still are. It's been a long time since I've had contact with them. But some of you know who they are. Good, good, good people. And... Over the course of our, our, I think it was four days that we were with them, they introduced us to a lot of people, including Mario. Mario, at one point in his life, had been part of a gang. And I didn't know this at the time, but there's a number of different branches of gangs. There's the drug, violence, guns part of gangs, but there's also, if you didn't know this, um, there are gang parts that are just about street racing. Street racing is something that represents their gang, and they carry the name of their gang into street racing. So if you ever see stuff on, like, illegal street racing that goes on somewhere in the city, that can be a part of gang culture. Then you also have the dance part that goes on. There's actually um, groups that are representing their gang in dance stuff, which I wasn't aware of. I'm learning a lot of new things. And finally, there's the tagging part of gangs. Tagging is graffiti. And you carry the name of the gang into whatever part of the city you are in and you claim territory and you make your mark and you get known by your tag and your tag name. And they know your tag name represents your gang. And Mario, I don't remember what his tag name was, but he, had, he was a, a renowned tagger because his whole focus was to go anywhere and everywhere he could he would climb water towers. He was the kind of guy, you, you ever seen a tag somewhere and you think, how did they even get there? How did they even do that? This guy was doing that. He, those were the sorts of tags that he wanted to put. And he was a very talented artist, as many taggers are. These guys really are talented, talented folks. That's why they're in this part of the gang. And he was. But then Christ got a hold of him. And over a number of years and a bunch of different stuff, he actually got out of the gang that he was a part of. And after he got out of this gang, he was being discipled by some people. And he just really felt like that part of his life, that door needed to be completely closed. So he wanted nothing to do with those big tagging markers that they have. And he wanted nothing to do with spray paint cans anymore because that, those were also the tools of his trade. So he, he never painted stuff around his house. He would only paint with a brush anymore because that's, that's the only way that, that he felt like he was not part of that tagging culture anymore. 
he would go to hardware stores and actually go around the place where they sold those cans because it was so, so much a part of him, he felt uncomfortable with it. And for a long time, he just sort of felt like, I need to not do that. I need not to be a part of that. I don't want anything to do with that anymore. That was a part of my old life. Tilly was somewhere at a family gathering with a niece. And this niece was doing what little girls do at family gatherings because they're bored because the adults just want to talk the whole time. And she was drawing pictures. And Mario was sitting and talking with her while she drew her pictures. And she said to Mario, here. He took the paper. She said, can you draw me a flower? Mario was sort of at a loss because he felt like, wait, that's an old part of my life. I don't want stuff to do with that. He actually said he felt that burden that that was part of what was and he didn't want anything to do with that. But here's this cute little girl. When a cute little girl asks you to do something, what do you do? You do it. So he took a marker, something he hadn't held for a long time, and he drew a picture of a flower. And his niece looked at the picture and she said, wow, that's really beautiful. Can you draw me another one? Mario took his marker and he drew another flower. Wow, that's really beautiful, Uncle Mario. Can you draw me a puppy dog? Because apparently that's where girls' minds go, flowers than puppy dogs. <laughs> and he's an artist. This guy's talented. Hadn't used a marker in years, but you don't lose that talent. You can hone it and get better at it, but you don't lose it. And he drew a puppy dog, and she said, Mario, that's beautiful. Thank you for the picture you drew me. And Mario went home. By this time, he had a wife and a couple kids, and he said, I felt like I was at a little bit of a crossroads because here was something that was before so much a part of sin, and I didn't want to do it because that would make me sinful, and it would remind me of that sin. But here's this little cute girl saying to me, that's really beautiful. And then Mario proceeded to reach behind himself while he was talking to the group that I was a part of, and he pulls out his portfolio. He's a talented artist. And I wish that I would have had the foresight at the time to buy a picture or two of his. Because now he... Does, does airbrush pictures of people in worship. He does people raising their hands with the other people in the background that are just gorgeous. He has this one picture, this is the one that I wish that I had, of a preacher standing up in front with a Bible open in front of him, teaching a group of people the word of God. Mario lives into the freedom of being a forgiven follower of Jesus Christ. And the net result of living into that freedom, not being consumed by that sin anymore, not feeling the guilt of what was before, but now feeling free in obedience to God to use the gifts that he's given to show gratitude and give him glory. And God is proclaimed in powerful, powerful ways. People of the river, as you go from this place, for you and I to ask ourselves the question, 
in the Spirit, Lord, where are you calling me to live into the freedom that comes through the grace of Jesus Christ? My sins are taken away. They're burned on a pile and they're outside the camp. I don't need to worry about them ever, ever, ever again. Now what is it that you are calling me to live into so that I can go there and do that knowing that if you're going with me, things may get messy, things may get crazy, but if you go with me, there's gonna be joy, there's gonna be life, and it's gonna be your kingdom. Would you pray with me? We praise you, O God, for the freedom that we know through the crucified Christ who's taken our sins away. And now, Father, through the Spirit, we can live into the freedom and the hope that has been given to us. Lord, may we get into that rhythm of freedom, of feeling the joy, of feeling the life and abundant life that you have given to us. Lord, may we go from this place not held down by guilt or our need for forgiveness, but instead released through your grace to the freedom you have for us. In Christ we pray, amen.